Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. Um, Pastor Corey's message this morning was amazing. If you weren't here, I encourage you, have a look on YouTube or podcast because I feel like what the Holy Spirit is doing is putting layer on layer. There's some commonalities in our themes today and I know the Holy Spirit is speaking. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Some of you may have heard this story before, but it's a true story. There was a man whose name was Mark. He had young children. They were on holidays and they found themselves at a local zoo. And there they were beholding a 6,200 kilogram elephant. That's seven tons. That's the average size for an adult elephant. And as they were looking at this elephant, what puzzled them was the fact that it was actually held in place by nothing but a small thin rope tied to its front leg. Now, everybody who was looking at this elephant could plainly see that it had the power and the size to break free of that rope, and yet it did not even try to get free. The handler walked past, and Mark said, can you explain to us why the elephant doesn't try to get free? The trainer explained that when elephants are born, they weigh about 90 kilos, and that they put that very same rope on them at infancy, at that stage of immaturity. And so the elephants can't break free of the rope at that age. They actually grow up believing, developing an embedded belief that they cannot break free of the rope even when they outgrow it in power and size. And so they stop trying to get free. Freedom is very valuable to God. That is why from the very beginning, he gave us choice. He gave Adam and Eve choice in the garden. He gave them choice about whether or not to sin. And where the Spirit of the Lord is present, freedom in his sons and daughters is evident. In verse 17 of our passage, it says, where the Spirit, we love that word here because it's the word pneuma, means breath, wind, Holy Spirit. Where the pneuma of the Lord is, there is freedom. In the original language, this means free to be at one's own disposal or not owned by anybody. Now, this was really radical theology to the culture of the time because slavery was commonplace. They were also ruled by a Roman empire that ruled via fear and control. 
The Jews were ruled by Pharisees and Sadducees who also ruled by religious rules and regulations, fear and control. So to hear that there could be a Lord who would come and give a spirit that would not enslave you but set you free was radical. Now, it's also incredible for us today because we need to understand that God's goal is not to remove sinful choice from our life. Nor is it His goal to tie us to rules and regulations and keeping us small and immature. His goal, in fact, His gift is to place the Holy Spirit inside of us and to trust the Holy Spirit's work in our life, to lead us to be holy so that we can live in a world of unlimited choices. And God's not up there like, oh, angels, let's pray they choose the right thing today. Maybe we should just remove that choice from in front of them because, oh, did you see them yesterday? Things are looking good. No, he's like, they have the fullness of the Holy Spirit inside of them. And the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit for a reason. Galatians 5.25 talks about following the Holy Spirit step by step. And guess where he leads us? To holiness. So Father God trusts Holy Spirit in us. He trusts that we can be free people and we will freely, through loving relationship, not obligation, choose to live righteous and holy lives. Do you know, he's bringing holy back. There's been this like perception in the church, but I don't know how long that if you're holy, you're boring. Or that if you're holy, you're sour. Mm. No, 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 no. You can be fun, full of the Spirit, full of abundant life and be completely holy. It's not either or, it's both and. And He is bringing holy back in this season. And I love that we're about this in this church. Have you noticed? It's a joy to repent. It's a joy to be sacrificed and killed over and over and over again every single day because He's making us into something brand new. I don't walk around like, oh, I'm going to have to repent today. I'm like, woohoo! God's making me more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit's leading me towards holiness. That wasn't right. I need to get on my knees quickly. Father, forgive me. Sometimes I don't know what I'm doing. But I thank you that you've given me your Holy Spirit. And I'm not alone trying to figure this out. He's going to lead me towards holiness. I stepped over the line there. Would you forgive me? Teach me a new way to think about that. Teach me a new way to walk. I think it's one of the marks of this season that it's a joy to be refined. You know, in the context of this passage, Apostle Paul was actually speaking very clearly about freedom from a veil. And this was important, this is an important concept right throughout Scripture. 
But in this context, some of the believers in Corinth had hardened their hearts or veiled, put something over their hearts. And what they um, hardening their hearts over was the new thing that was available to them through the work of Jesus. And their hearts were hard. They were continuing to try and live by old paradigms, old ways. They were trying to return back to the law. It's kind of like a fully grown elephant being bound by a tiny thin rope. This is how they were choosing to live when they had the fullness of the Holy Spirit inside of them. Ezekiel actually prophesied about what the deposit, the guard of the Holy Spirit would do to our hardened and veiled hearts. God said through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, veiled hearts were an issue in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and today. But now we have the Holy Spirit who's been sent to unveil our hearts and lead us to true freedom, not the world's freedom, true freedom. Here's the thing. True freedom is very personal, but it is never self-centered. You getting free is a very personal thing that the Holy Spirit offers to you, but it's never (laughs) self-centered. We experience true freedom when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit He produces the fruit of the Spirit within us. One of those is self-control, which means we can use our freedom to bless God and to bless others. The way you steward your freedom can bless the person on your left and your right. Have you ever thought about the fact that what you do with your birthright of freedom as a Christian can bless God? How beautiful is that? We can use our freedom to worship the Lord. And the Holy Spirit internally motivates us towards freedom, purity, and integrity because the Holy Spirit's bringing holy back. And so when we get free, our veils come off. Verse 18 says, We all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. We've already heard that word a few times tonight, behold. And this speaks of face-to-face intimacy with Jesus. Ephesians 1 talks about the eyes of our heart being enlightened. When the veil is removed, the eyes of our hearts become unveiled and we can see Jesus clearly. We can see him rightly, not distorted, not inhibited in any way, not through something else like the filters of our own preconceived ideas or our history or what we think things should look like. But we can see Jesus rightly when the veils come off our hearts. There's a song that we've been singing in this season that is based on Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. And the words are, I want to see you rightly. I want to see you, Jesus. I want to see you rightly. I want to see you, Jesus. In fact, we're going to worship right now. I want you to lift your hands where you are. You don't have to stand. Good, Joel. (laughs) Good, Joel. 
He's like, oh, I better rescue her. Uh, Why don't you just lift your hands where you are? I just want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Because I, I want to see you. Come on, tell him. Oh, I, I want to see you, to see you rightly, Jesus. can reject the imposter, the false self when we come into church because when we look at Him, we get an accurate perspective of who we really are. We don't need to pretend. We don't need to fake. I love in this season that we can come into church and we can take the masks off and we can just be real. That people could say, yeah, I've been having night terrors. Yeah, actually, I'm struggling with lust. Yes, actually, I'm struggling with sin that is clinging to me because what we hide, God cannot heal. So I love that we're coming into this place and we're saying, yeah, I got my stuff, but I'm gonna fix my eyes on Jesus and I'm gonna get the right perspective and my veils are coming off. And He presents Himself in our midst. Aren't you so glad we don't have to pretend? Did you know that your sensitivity to eye contact actually begins at two days old? It's a whole bunch of studies that have been done that actually show that by the time you are four months old, most of your important relational neural pathways are already deeply embedded in your brain. Guess who's the most deeply embedded in your brain? The people who stop to lock eyes with you from two days Do you know what this tells me? You and I are hardwired physiologically, biologically, and spiritually for face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And the more time we spend fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and learning to see Him rightly, the more deeply embedded He is in our minds. And the more deeply embedded who Jesus is in our minds, the more we begin to behave and look like Jesus. You know, I want to drill down for a moment. Thank you, Joel, for rescuing me. I want to drill down for a moment. Actually, you do that a lot. I honour you, Joel. Can we honour Pastor Joel? Good man. I want to drill down into this concept of veils for a moment because Paul is actually saying a lot behind what he's not saying. Because for his audience of the day, there would have been a lot of knowledge that he was assuming, a lot of things he would have known. And I want to draw some connections for us here today. Paul's actually referring to one of the greats of intimacy, the friend of God, Moses. And the Bible is actually full of Moses' encounters with God. In the Old Testament, Moses is mentioned over 700 times. In the New Testament, over 70 times. And each time, it's either describing an encounter Moses has with God or his actions as a result of an encounter with God. I'm going to give you the summarized version. Deuteronomy describes that Moses knew the Lord face to face. Numbers tells us that Moses would speak with God. God would speak with Moses mouth to mouth. He would literally put his words in Moses' mouth to speak to the people. Exodus says that God used to speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. And we read that when Moses came out of his encounters with God, that his face would glow. The word that is used here literally means to glow with supernatural beams of light. In other words, Moses soaked for so long in God's presence, sometimes 40 days and 40 nights, that his literal being began to take on the constitution of who God himself is. He began to reflect light from the inside out. My word for this year is a year to soak. I want to soak in God's presence so much that my countenance takes on the countenance of Jesus himself. And when we come into his presence and we spend, we spend this extended time in worship, we're taking his being on our being so that we can reflect him to the world. And this glow was actually so confronting to the Israelites in the wilderness because they had this veiled thing going on. They had this hardened heart. And when your heart is hard or veiled, glory can actually be very confronting. And so they asked him to wear a veil so that they could cope with what was coming off his face. And Moses would only remove that veil when he went in to spend time with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul was drawing from this in these two little verses. Earlier in 2 Corinthians, he says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not even gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory. 
You know, I used to think that when I got to heaven, I'd be like, where's Moses? I need to talk to Moses. Where's David? I need 10 minutes with David, please. Because I want to ask David, what was it like to be known as the man after God's own heart? I want to ask Moses, what was the burning bush actually like? How did you hear from God? Tell me all about all the things. But you know what I've come to realise? It's probably more likely that they're going to ask you and I, what was it like to live with the Holy Spirit inside of you? You know, I think of Jesus himself on the cross. We read in Matthew's gospel that as Jesus yielded up his spirit, that the curtain, also referred to as the veil, was torn in two from top to bottom. History tells us that the priests misunderstood what was happening and so they tried to sew it back together. What was happening? Jesus was removing the veil once and for all between man and his glory. He was saying, I want you to come right in through the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ and stand face to face with me. And then he deposited the Holy Spirit when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this scripture tells us that the glory we behold and reflect is greater than that of Moses because of the Spirit. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what's possible? If it's even greater than what we read about Moses and we do the beholding, but we don't do the transforming. The Holy Spirit does the transforming because we become what we behold. Pastor Corey mentioned that this morning, the Holy Spirit's on this. I love the New King Jimmy version of verse 18. It says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. That we're beholding there is reflect. Reflecting like a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now, in the context of the time, mirrors weren't made of glass like ours are. They were made of small circles of metal that could rust. And so they had to polish the surface of the metal so that they could see the image, the reflection clearly. And it actually required constant attention and work to keep the corrosion away and keep the reflection clear. Now, I'm sure you're already drawing the metaphor here. We are the mirror. And the Holy Spirit polishes our hearts to reproduce an ever-increasing glory and reflection of who Christ is to the world around us. It's also the Word of God that's like a mirror, that as we study who God is, that as we study Jesus, this Word mirrors His character to us and then we can reflect it to the world around us now. The enemy's goal is always to shift our focus off Jesus. Because if he can do that, he can actually stunt who God wants you to become and who he wants you to reflect. If he can get us to look at what we're not. If he can get us to look at the areas where he hasn't broken through. We will fall to the level of our latest mistake or our latest disappointment because we become what we behold. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will rise to the level of who he is and reflect him to the world. What does this look like? 
Well, we had a moment, um, I had a moment a few weeks ago in a revival service where there was a minister of the gospel here who I greatly respect. And there'd been something that I'd been really uh, seeking to grow in and praying about in the secret place for a long time. And, And this minister laid hands on me and imparted to me the thing I'd been praying for. And these words were declared about a healing ministry and about unusual miracles. And it was such a, like a moment. I can't even tell you how many things in my life intersected in that moment of impartation. And as it was happening, it was like a lightning bolt came through my head and I let out this kind of scream because it actually hurt. And then it was like the lightning was coming out through holes in my hands. And I just had my hands raised and it it was quite painful. But I knew I had to let this happen because God was doing something in me. And he began to show me visions of when I felt this sensation in my hands, I was to lay my hands where people were sick until the sensation passed and that they would be healed. Now, at the moment that I'm receiving this impartation and having this incredible vision comes this voice. How could you operate in healing when you couldn't even have faith for your own daughter to live. One of the most significant moments in my life, and that's what comes. For those of you who don't know, this part of my story, at 16 weeks in my first pregnancy, our daughter's heart stopped. She had a weak heart from very early on, and it it just stopped. And we named her Hope Freedom. And actually... um, Yes, that's what we named her. And um, I had to go home overnight and come back the next day to have a procedure to have her little body removed from my body. And as we went home that night, Jai really felt that he had a word from the Lord that she was going to be raised to life. And we heard incredible testimonies about that. And so he laid hands on my stomach. We're in our early 20s. We were so excited about this pregnancy. And he begins to pray and speak to her, hope come to life in Jesus' name. He did say, you will live. You will not die. And I remember him pacing our bedroom all night long. The problem was I thought I knew the moment a few days earlier when I felt her spirit leave my body. So we go back to the hospital the next day and my faith-filled husband says, you're not doing anything until we have a scan. And he says to the nurse, my daughter is alive. They do an ultrasound no heartbeat. That is the moment that came back to me right there when healing ministry was being imparted to me. Who do you think was the source of that? Because the enemy was trying to shift my focus off Jesus the healer and put it on my lack, put it on my previous experience. And if he can do that, if he can shift what I'm beholding, he can shift what I'm becoming. And he can abort the destiny on our lives. I was so encouraged just a few days later to read the story of Maria Woodworth Etta, an incredible healing evangelist. What many people don't know is five out of six of her children died of illness. You can't tell me the enemy didn't come to her and say, who do you think you are? But we've got to fix our eyes. And we become what we behold. So we have to get really good at beholding Jesus. So, I've laid a scriptural foundation for what I feel is very important for me to speak into for the next few minutes. Is everyone doing okay? Because I actually believe that this is what's been happening to us 
that this scripture has described the spiritual exchange that's been happening in us since August 28. I actually believe that we've been becoming something. I actually believe that God's been transforming us from something into something new. But sometimes we don't stand up and live into the fullness of the new thing if we don't articulate, name and own what's happened. There has been so much happen in the last six months in the spiritual realm that it can be hard to get your head around. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to give articulation to two changes, transformations that I believe have happened in us. Is everyone good with that? The first is this, we are not a church having a revival. We are now a revival church. That's the transformation or transition that's happened here in this house. That's happening in different houses all across the world, but right now this is very important to us. We're not a church having a revival, we are now a revival church. The second transition that we're going to talk about for a little while is we are not people attending revival meetings, we are revivalists. So I'm going to give you a few thoughts on what this looks like to be a revival church and what it looks like to live as a revivalist. Because when we name and own the paradigm shifts that transformation brings, we can live into the fullness of the newness. Revival churches choose the mantle over methods. What do I mean? It means that we're probably going to look different than most other churches. It means we're probably going to look different than most other Christians. Because when mantle comes against method, what I mean by method is if everybody's talking about the latest church growth strategy, if everyone's talking about life groups the way to do it now or um, growth tracks is the way to do it now or whatever it might be coming from very godly wise people, but that method pushes up against our mantle to be a revival church, we have already chosen which one will submit to which. We will choose the mantle over the methods. It means that when you're in your cafe or you're in your workplace because you're now not a person who attends revival but you're a revivalist and the method of how everyone is polite normally in a cafe pushes up against your mantle as a revivalist, which one are you going to choose? We're deciding now which one's going to default, which one's going to bow to the other. Do you know, one of the sad things about this is that some people may separate from us. Relationally, um, some people may put a veil in between us and them. I heard someone say something pretty funny the other day. He was like, it's, it's very sad when people leave church, and it is. He goes, but that's the way you know you're not a cult, when people are free to leave. <laughs> Revivalists break the mould, they don't fit the mould. Revival churches break the mould, they don't fit the mould. I was reading about John and Carol Arnott the other day, or Arnott. 
And do you know that they actually faced, when they were in this revival season, they faced intense persecution, not from the world, from the body of Christ. They faced such rejection from other churches and other ministers of the gospel. It was, a, In a lot of ways, they describe a very lonely season for them. And the reason was because the way God was pouring out his spirit was what's known as a revival of grace. People, instead of repenting with sorrow, were repenting with joy, uncontrollable laughter. And when they were laughing this way, they were actually repenting. It was God's kindness. They would come out of those encounters of uncontrollable laughter and be completely transformed people, but people didn't understand. And so John and Carol Arnott actually talk about how regularly, daily sometimes, they had to kill the fear of man and people pleasing because they understood that revival churches and revivalists break the mold, they don't fit the mold. Revival churches and revivalists follow the movement of the new thing. This means that we're going to get really good at flexing and changing quickly. Things won't necessarily stay the same for long and we will love it. Because if we don't grow with revival, revival will outgrow us. Now, God is the same yesterday, today and forever. That's his character. But the way he moves or outworks that character in our lives is dynamic, fresh and new. So as followers of the movement of the Holy Spirit, not followers of formula, as we follow him and he's always doing something new, it means we're going to have to let go of some old things and just get okay with doing some new things. Revival churches and revivalists, oh, this is big, live with the conviction that revival is not just a season Revival's not one of the plans, it is God's plan. And if we live in this move of God as though it's temporary, it will be. If we keep our conversation like, I wonder how much longer this is going to go for before I can get back to my normal life. We'll probably get back to our normal lives pretty quick. (laughs) Revivalists carry revival with them wherever they go. They don't attend revival meetings and leave the revival in the church. They live with the thread of revival running through every area of their life, not compartmentalised lives. You know, I was attending, um, I stuck in the back of a church in a different place, different state uh, recently. And um, the worship and everything was magnificent. But there was this girl beside me and she was like, groaning the whole way through worship and I'm thinking oh someone will pray for her soon they'll open the altars soon and then we're getting towards the end of church and no one did pray for her and no one opened the altars and I was already kind of you know meditating on this message and then it like dawned on me like oh hang on I'm meant to pray for her and so then I started debating with the Lord but like this isn't my house and if this is not the way they do things in this house he's like why do you think I got you to sneak in and sit up the back row I was like, all right. He's like, so are you only attending revival meetings, Stacey, or are you a revivalist? I was like, thank you, Jesus, at your command. And so I leant over to this girl and I said, hey, my name's Stacey. I noticed you groaning all the way through the service. And so I wondered if you were in pain. And she just goes, thank you for asking. 
And then she began to describe to me what was going on in her body. I said, can I pray for you? And so I laid hands on her and I uh, commanded the pain to leave her body and spoke kingdom order and heaven coming to earth over her body. And she began to weep. And then um, the service finished and I, I quietly slipped out. Nobody really knew what had happened. I get into my car, I'm leaving the car park and I see this girl running up to my car, tears streaming down her face. And she goes, thank you. Thank you for having faith. I didn't have faith. Thank you. Thank you for praying for me. And then her husband started to come and so she closed the conversation. You know, a revivalist doesn't attend a revival meeting and then go, oh, well, I'm off shift now. We take it wherever we go. Revivalists build their lives around revival. Revival churches build their churches around revival. I don't know if anyone else tried this. Last year, I tried to keep doing everything I was doing before the move of God hit, before August 28. That worked really well for about four days. So this year, it's like rather than trying to shuffle things on the table till everything fits and everything works, it's like clear it off. If I'm a revivalist and we're a revival church and I live in revival, what actually fits around that? And this is the way God's calling us to live. Revivalists are contenders, not just attenders. Revivalists don't stand in pre-service prayer and be like, oh, they're praying good up there. They are worshipping good up there. They're like, oh, I'm in. I'm praying in the spirit. I'm contending. I'm shifting things. I'm shifting things. I'm getting things done just as much as the person up on the platform is because I'm not an attender. I'm a contender. Revivalists and revival churches are built around the presence of God. They sustain higher levels of Holy Spirit presence because this leads to transformation. This means that, you know, maybe you need to put worship music on more in your home. Maybe you need to switch the radio off and just have some soaking music on. We build our lives around the presence of God. Revival churches and revivalists reject entertainment and consumerist mindsets. You know, in churches, if entertainment is what we have to do to get people, it's what we have to do to keep them. But when we all come going, I'm not coming to get entertained. I'm coming to contend. I'm coming to bless the Lord. I'm coming because I can pray for the person beside me or I can worship and I can build with my brothers and sisters all our streams coming together, a revival river of healing. And so we come not to be entertained, but to bless the Lord. And revivalists choose the miraculous over the mechanical. I'm going to read verse 18 one more time before I wrap this up and Joel, you can come again. It says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This word transformed means to remodel or to change into another form. It's where we get our commonly known word metamorphosis. It's the process of transformation from an immature form to an adult form in two or more distinct stages. 
A change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one. And you will have learned all about this when you learned about the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly. And it's this process that Paul is referring to. I'm going to refresh your primary school minds. It begins with an egg. A caterpillar eats leaves. And when they outgrow their current skin five times, they stop feeding, they hang upside down from a twig and spin a cocoon, becoming a chrysalis. The caterpillar ingests itself before growing into the body parts of a future butterfly. It struggles out of the cocoon and emerges as a butterfly, completely transformed from one state to another. What's really interesting to note is that butterflies release chemicals getting out of their chrysalis, struggling out of their chrysalis, that strengthens their wings so they can soar once out. Their movements inside the chrysalis pump fluid into their wings, which help their wings to reach their full span. Their Houdini-like struggle escape helps them build the necessary muscles to do everything a butterfly is designed to do. The timing of their emergence from the chrysalis is key. Too early and they're doomed because they won't have developed enough. So if a well-meaning human interferes and tries to help the butterfly with its struggle, it will doom the butterfly to weak wings and immaturity. I sense this is how 2023 began. Emerging from one thing to another and perhaps you sense the struggle. Perhaps you've sensed, I'm not who I was, but I'm not quite sure who I am now. I wish someone would come and get me out of this place of feeling restricted or like something's not quite right. But the Holy Spirit has sent me to tell you tonight that He's been building within you the strength when you face the wall that Pastor Corey talked about this morning. He's been building within you the strength that is required, pumping within you the things that are required so that you can reach your full wingspan, so that you can soar in this new season as a revivalist right here in a revival church. So today, it is so important that we name and own this transformation, but I can't do that for you. I can get a jacket that says revivalist. That's a stake in the ground for me. I can't go back now. It's not going to be easy all the time to be a revivalist. You may face rejection for it, maybe even from your own family. But we've been made from something into something. I can't go back. I've tasted and I've seen and I can't go back. I feel like Nicodemus who at night went to Jesus and Jesus said, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, what? I've got to go back into my mother's womb when I'm fully grown. I feel like if we tried to go back, it would be trying to go back into the womb of something old when God has birthed something brand new. And this start of this year might have felt hard for some people, but let me tell you, it's the kindness and the grace of God because He wants to see you reach your full potential.
potential so that you can reflect Him to the world around you. So I wanna ask you tonight, are you ready to put a stake in the ground and say, I can't go back. I am now a revivalist. I can't go back. I am now part of a revival church and I am pretty happy about it. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.